So you know, you know in life where you think something is a certain way and then something happens where you realise it was not that way at all? Do you have those sort of situations? Um, I've had one of those situations uh, this week. Um, I read the, the Thursday reading, yeah, Thursday reading of John 7, and I thought it was about a whole bunch of stuff, that when I looked into it, I was completely misled. Now, this happened to me this week, but it also happened to Zari, unbeknownst to her until a certain point in time. You see, we've been cultivating this lemon tree at home, and it's gradually been growing these really plump, juicy lemons, and for about a month, Zara and I've had the same conversation of can I pick it because the plan was to take it to show and tell right so how good would that be fresh fruit growing in the garden Zara's going to take it to show and tell and so each week it's close it's close it's not there but on Tuesday we knew that this was the week the Thursday morning we cut it before school she'd take it to school do the show and tell it'd be amazing now on Wednesday night I had to go out and so well, our prayer walk and so I came home from that and everyone was asleep and I thought, oh, I have to remember to cut the lemon tomorrow morning with Zari before she goes to, to her school. So I went into our fridge and I picked out the reminder lemon that I put next to my keys so that in the morning I come and go, lemon, oh, lemon, Zara, let's go out. Right? Perfect plan. Except for the fact that when I woke up on Thursday morning, I wasn't feeling very well. And so I decided to stay in bed. And I climbed out of bed at nine o'clock and I went downstairs and I looked at the kitchen bench and the reminder lemon was gone. I'm like, where's that? Is that back in the fridge? So I looked in the fridge and the reminder lemon was not in the fridge. I thought, oh no, Zari's taken the reminder lemon to school thinking it was the real lemon that she's now going to tell a story about a fake lemon. I'm like, well, <laughs> it's done now. So she comes home. I go, um, did you do show and tell today? She goes, yeah, yeah. So did you talk about the lemon? She goes, yeah. I said, how'd it go? She says, as she's, she likes to chat after school, she said, yeah, good. <laughs> All right, well, I'm glad that was a success. I said, I have, I have something to show you when, we, when you get home. So she comes in. I said, come on, this is quite funny. Come, come this way. And we went out. And she has no idea what's going on. And we walked around to the lemon tree that still has the real lemon that we were going to show and tell right there. I said, you know what that is? And she looks at it and she goes, how did you do that? <laughs> and I said, I'm magic. I somehow got it out of your school bag and back on the plant without you realising. And I explained what happened, that she had this whole story in mind of how she thought it went, but the actual story was quite different because there was a missing piece that when she worked out where that was, she thought it was quite entertaining, which was good because I thought this could be so devastating. So we pitched it positive and we came out on top. We pick up the story today from John uh, chapter 7 of what's happened is there's been a six month break between John chapter 6 and John chapter 7. So you finish reading John chapter 6 and then you've got to understand there's a six month leap before you get into John 7. And the other gospels pick up what happens in that six months, but John chooses not to. And so we have Jesus wandering around Galilee. He's staying in his hometown and he's staying with his family, with his brothers and probably his mums there. So he's kind of camped out at the family home and doing some, some stuff. We're going to put up a, a, a map now. Just chuck up a map, Sam. It shows you a little bit about the geography of Israel. So Galilee is where he is. He's right at the top. And Jerusalem is right down here near Judea. 
So it's about as geographically far away from Jerusalem as you can get and stay in Israel, right? That's handy to keep in mind as we talk through what we're going to talk through. So verse 1 of chapter 7 says, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee for six months. He did not wish to go about in Judea, down here, because the Jews were looking for an opportunity to kill him. So that's why he's gone um, back up to Galilee to do some ministry. The Jews were the, the, the Jewish leaders that had some clout. It wasn't like the entire nation of Israel, every Jew. It was, it was a particular group that were out to get him that we understand when we grab the whole story. So Jesus opts to stay in Galilee about as far away from them as he can stay. Now, the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near. The lemon was near, right? This is the lemon part. You just floss over it and you miss what the whole story is about. The tabernacle, the festival of tabernacles had a Jewish name and the Jewish name was Sukkot. Now we're all going to say this, ready? One, two, three. Sukkot. Very good. So you just spoke Hebrew, you know, no, you get booted out if you're naughty today. Um, so it was held once a year, this festival of Sukkot that we call Festival of, 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 of Tabernacles. And it was a memorial for their time in the desert. So the Israel people, their history was in the desert. When the Israelite people were saved from Pharaoh by Moses, they walked through the Red Sea and into the desert where God led them around the desert for 40 years as he developed in them this steadfast, faithful dependence on God. Because only then, when that was developed in them, were they ready for the benefit of the promised land, right? So because God knew that this promised land would take the focus away from him. So he develops this heart in his people for 40 years of worship and trust in the desert. Now, as they're walking around the desert, they needed to camp at night. And what did they camp in? Tents. And what were tents called? Tabernacles. Ooh, Feast Festival of Tabernacles. So they camped in mini tabernacles. What we would say is, is tents or kind of a, 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 like a bush contraption that we'll explain a little bit about in just a minute. So, so it was this constant reminder when they're camping in tents of how little they had. They had no land, they had no house, they had no security, they had nothing other than the belongings that they took with them out of Egypt and their God. So when they look back at Sukkot, when Sukkot came and they looked back, they went, remember that we had God. It didn't matter what we didn't have. What mattered was we had God. And we need to remember that now we have a heap of stuff, that we are actually people that are defined by God regardless of how much stuff we had. So that was the feast of tabernacles. And this festival that they had happened at the end of September, early October. It shifted around from year to year. Um, But it was a festival of joy and celebration and anticipation. Like this was was this holy, wild, week-long party. And they partied. They still do. Everyone loved it. It was a sense of, oh, Sukkot is coming, the festival of tabernacles. This is going to be amazing. Now, back when they were in the desert, Every time the Jewish people stopped camp, they would not only set up these small tabernacles for a family, they would set up a giant tabernacle called the tabernacle, which was, let's see, see how you go, which was the equivalent to the Jewish modern day, what? Temple. Temple. 
So they, they couldn't build a temple every time they stopped. So what they did is they, they would set up this massive tent that was quite splendorous, splendorous, covered different, wonderful, like amazing, splendid, <laughs> splendid. Um, in its appearance and its intricacy, it was just this work of art, and it was where God lived. So they understood, they set up the tabernacle with the Ark of the Covenant in it, and that's where God lived. So they would have their tabernacles around God's tabernacle, and as long as their tabernacle was in sight of God's tabernacle, they knew God was always with them. God was present with them. Now, in this special tabernacle, which tent, which then became to be this, this building and this temple, was, was where people would come and they would take their sacrifice and they would have their sins um, dealt with. They would have all those things um, uh, take place. So, um, so when they fled from the desert, fled from Israel into the desert, they're holding nothing. They build this tabernacle and there was a sense of like, you can take everything from us, but as long as we have our tabernacle, it means God is there. It means we don't need anything else other than God. So every year they party around that. That we don't need all these things that we can get distracted by. All we need is God. We have such thanksgiving that it just flows out. So at Sukkot, there was this sense of joy. It was this sense of, oh, we can just do away with everything. We have each other. We have God. That's all we need. And so they partied in the realisation that all they needed was God, that God is enough for them, that their lives can be totally about God, just as God is for them. Every year they have this reminder that should carry them through the sense of, uh, the sense of, of this year, of remember Sukkot, and then, then they would look toward it. But it wasn't just a remembering of how things was. How's things were? Sorry about that. It's terrible, isn't it? Hanging around my kids too long. It wasn't just a remembering of how things were back then. It was actually a prophetic looking toward of what things will be. Because one day, the Jewish people, just like us, believe that God will gather up everything to himself again. He will reconcile everyone to himself. He will draw in those who have their eyes fixed to him, they have a desire for him. He will draw and he will reestablish his kingdom in its fullness. So Sukkot was like, this is the kingdom that's coming. It's experiencing that right now. It's the joy of what it means to be with God. It's reclaiming what has been taken away, but one day will be given to us in its fullness. It was a sense of they were practicing what it would be like one day when they were with God in heaven. That's what, that's what this Sukkot is. So they build these tents well after, so in Jesus' time, they would build these tents. There would be four poles and a, a, a roof, and on the roof would be a palm trees that they would be able to lay in and look up and see through the palm trees to the stars. And so it would be this really kind of rough, like we would say, well, that's going camping. And maybe that's why we love camping so much, because it grounds us. I'd speak for most of us, maybe not all of us. Yeah, uh, yeah I don't know. There might be some people like, I hate camping. There's nothing wrong with you. But that's, um, so so th this, was, this was the space, right? There was a sense of when you laid in the tabernacle, your tabernacle, and you looked up at the skies, you went, they're the same stars that my ancestors were looking at. And the God who created these stars, he gives me everything I ever need. And so there's a sense of security because of what God did and who God was in that space. Now here's where Sukkot gets a little bit unconventional. It was expected that your enemy and those that you didn't like, 
popped into your tent during Sukkot to party with you. It was expected, right? Because the whole nation. So, so you would have a party in your tent, then you go to somebody else's tent, you'd party there and you go to somebody else's tent, and you'd be praying, you'd be dancing, you'd be having a great time, you'd be getting close in relationship. And then it was expected that if you had a wrong against someone, you would go to their tent to party in it with them. And if somebody had a wrong against you, they would come to your tent to party with you in that space, right? Hands up, who'd be keen for that party? Oh, I just get to go, my, my, my enemies. So why would that happen? Why would that be part of what should happen? Because A, in doing so, in your enemy coming into your tent, they will be influenced by you to become as good as you. Because you know, when you have an enemy, you're good and you're right and they're wrong, right? So that was, that's what would happen. That was the understanding. Well, if they come to your tent, then you have a chance to make them as good as you are. And B, the thinking would be that it's just... Not a ref- it's not a reflection of what has been. One day, if all goes to plan, we're going to be in heaven and some of our enemies are also, I don't know how, but going to make it in, right? Because we're good, but they're bad. I don't know how you made it in. So, so we're practicing now because if we're going to live with our enemies for eternity, we better get good at it. Now, here's the brilliant part about it. You start inviting your enemies into your house to party with you and they become your friends. Because that, that tension can't remain. And so this idea of going, I'm reconciling my people to myself, but to each other through this wonderful festival of tabernacles or, or, or sukkot. Right? So you get a feel of what it's like. Does that start, start to make sense of like, oh, that's, that's how this will work? It was like a reset button on the harmony of the nation. It's like every Sukkot is like, let's hit the reset button, let's get right with each other and get right with God again. All right, we're good to go for another year. It was this way of enjoying a week of intentionally living in the presence of God, where every house and every tent and every tabernacle was considered a house of peace. So conflict couldn't exist in there because it would fracture this wonderful thing that God had given to compel people to forgive and to love and to accept. Because you can't live in the presence of God. Your home cannot be a house of peace if you hate people or if you have enemies or you have unresolved business that God wants you to sort out. It just can't work like that. And here's the overall thing. This is why they did it. To show themselves and to feel again that everything they have is temporary and that all they need is God. So, so the stuff they don't need, the status they don't need, the approval, the grudges, the bitterness, the fight, it's all temporary. It all comes to a conclusion at some stage. So why wait till here for the conclusion? Why not have it every Sukkot? Because all they need is God. They don't need to hold on to anything else, good or bad. All they need is God. That's verse one. We're not going to spend this long on every single verse. It's verse one. Verse two. Now the Jewish actually this. Now the Jewish festival of tabernacles that we've just talked about. It was near, and this festival was all about God. It was moving closer to God. It was appreciating God. It was caring less about our own stuff. The festival that was it was more about living in the peace of God and the shalom of God, and less about our own stuff. Right. That's what you have to grab hold of as we come out of this. So the festival was near. Verse three. So his brothers, his brothers said to him. Now he's chatting with his brothers, not his disciples. His brothers. How many brothers does Jesus have? 
Anyone know? Louder. Three, six, four. Four brothers. Anyone want to have a crack at their names? Jonty. Pardon? No. Sorry, man. I didn't. I should have said no. Kinder. Not quite. No. Yes. Jackpot. James. Jude. Judas. Who is? Yep. So Judas is one. Anyone else? The poor other, the other guys you've never heard of. Um, one's one's name is Joseph, which is a, a derivative of Joseph, which is Mary's husband. And the other is Simon, who's not Simon Peter. It's it's another Simon. Now, James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem and wrote the book of James. And Judas's nickname, this is really cool. Judas's nickname was Jude, and Jude wrote the book of Jude. So he pulled off getting a name in the Bible after his nickname. <laughs> well played, sir. So Jesus is chatting with his four brothers, like, like we would chat with our siblings around home. It's really important that we remember this, that we grab this, in Galilee. So his brothers say to him, leave here, go to Judah, so that your disciples also may see the wonderful work you're doing. For no one wants to be widely known. Nobody who wants to be widely known acts in secret. So his brothers are telling Jesus to make Sukkot, festivals of the tabernacle, all about him. When the festival was exactly the opposite. It was all about God. It wasn't about any one person. It was meant to be a time when everyone focused on God, not on something else. Now, the biggest celebration of Sukkot happened in Jerusalem. So, so that's where all the, all the thing was. That's where all the dignitaries would go, all the well-to-do people go. So if you wanted to make an entrance, this is when you would do it. You'd roll into Sukkot and you'd make sure everyone saw you and revered you. It was like, wow, you've come. So, so his, his brothers are basically saying, you think you're perfect. You think you're the Messiah. Go on, prove it. This will show us. Because you can't roll into, into Jerusalem at Sukkot and claim you're the Messiah. And, and if people agree with you, then no, we were wrong. But we're not sure you actually are. Can, can you imagine living with a brother who thought he was perfect? And who was? Like Zari, a, a five-year-old, is constantly, her mission in life, her calling, is to make sure we don't think that Hamish is perfect. <laughs> and she does a really remarkable job at it. In fact, I was researching today, and I thought, just to help us through, I'd call my own brother, and I'd ask him what it was like to grow up with a perfect brother. And so just for our purposes, so I did, I called him, I just said, hey, like doing a bit of research for the sermon, can you tell me what it was like to grow up with a perfect brother? And it was, it was a brief conversation. <laughs> and it was, he, he didn't have many words, which is clearly he was speechless at the experience. That's clearly what happened. Jesus' brothers want to force Jesus to realise he is not who he says he is. They want Jesus to be revealed as a fake. Because in their minds, he is a fake because he's their brother. Like what? For no one wants to be widely known acts in secret. So they're appealing to his pride. They're appealing to his ego. Then it says, if you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then in brackets in verse 5, it says, for not even his brothers believed him. Now their intent is not to show that Jesus is the answer to the world's problems. Their intent is to show Jesus that he is not the answer to the world's problems. But Jesus is brotherly, right? That's how brothers work. But Jesus wasn't all about Jesus. Him wasn't important to him. 
So Jesus says to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. And Jesus is saying, it's not all about me. Sukkot, this festival of tabernacles, it's not about me. One day, it will become all about me. And even when it becomes all about me, it's still not going to be all about me. But Sukkot, it's not about me. It's about God the Father. And it's not about the time to shift people's focus in that festival from worshipping God to worshipping me. It's not the right time. So you guys go up. But I will not enter Jerusalem as its Messiah. I will not enter Jerusalem as its Saviour. A time will come for that. Then he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. And at that point, they all went, oh, we understand why that is, Jesus. Real clear on why the world hates you, and you don't make any sense either. And then he says, because I testify against it that its works are evil. Then he says, go to the festivals yourselves. I'm not going to this festival for my time has not yet fully come. Jesus is not saying I'm not going to the festival at all. He's saying I'm not going as the Messiah. I'm not going to go there in any embodiment of divinity. Because this festival is about God. It's about what God is doing. And what God is doing, timing matters. And it's not by time yet. So after saying this, he remained in Galilee. So his brothers go down to Jerusalem, to, to Judea, and they celebrate Sukkot down there. And verse 10 says, but after his brothers had gone to the festival, then he also went, but not publicly. And I love the way the, verse, the, passage, the Bible says this, but as it were in secret. It's like, oh, so mysterious. As it were in secret. Lyndall and I had the same experience. When we came up to New Life, we were on holidays, we came up to New Life, and I said to Lyndall in the car on the way up, first time we'd ever been to New Life, just heard about it, um, I said to Lyndall, here's the deal, we're not going to tell anyone I'm a minister, right? Because as soon as you do that, it shifts the way everything works. Like, we'll just go in stealth. And so we went in, we sat down, they had the service, it was great. We went out afterwards to go to their welcome thing, because I'm like, oh, I'm going to learn some stuff. So I'm sitting there in the welcome thing, and a lady comes up to me, she goes, what's your name? I said, oh, Ralph, goes, where are you from? I'm like, oh, from down in Victoria. Oh, what do you do? And I was a pastor, right? I was like, I work with people. So literally, that's what I said. She goes, oh, that sounds lovely. What sort of work do you do with people? I talk, talk with them. <laughs> oh, so who do you work for? Uh, oh, I work in a church. What do you do in the church? I'm like, come on. This is not pastorally sensitive. You're supposed to like nod from the other side. And we're done. I said, all right, I'm the minister. And she goes, ah, and runs off. And I'm like, that's, that's not very welcoming. And then drags back Melissa Lipson and says, he's a minister. I knew you'd want to talk to him. And then the rest is history. That's how we are where we are today. You go in secret to be part of things. You go with the title so the focus comes to you. Jesus is like, I'm not going on the side. This isn't about me. I don't want to draw attention to me at all. I want to participate in this festival. He wanted to dance and to sing and to pray and to commune with people because that's what someone who loves God does. So he comes to this festival. And by doing so, he shows us this example. He shows us that this is how you should participate. This is how you should do. Jesus is saying, when you, when you look to, to him, he will carry your gaze to God the Father. Jesus is saying, when you, when you think on Jesus, 
He will direct your thoughts to God the Father. When we examine Jesus, we see the heart of God. When we follow Jesus, we're led into the presence of God. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's like, just follow me because you'll end up in the presence of God. Because it's not about me, it's about God. So Jesus, from his conversations with his brothers, to his secret ninja entry into Jerusalem, he was carrying everyone's gaze towards God the Father. This is why we go to Sukkot. Not because of me, but because of God the Father. Now, I want to show you how this works. I'm going to put up some logos on the screen, and I want you to yell out. This is a competition, right, with no prize other than glory. Um, so I want you to yell out when you recognise what it is. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll start off easy. Nice. Some of you are keen. Love it. All right. Next one. Very good. They'd say United States of America, but you know, that's right. All right. Good. Audi. Meg's crushing it. Nice. All the men. Nice. Well, no, I didn't mean that. I know there was some women that. Okay. Oh, yes. Fisher Price. I looked up Fisher and Pike. All right, next. No. No. If you're a Canon user, you'd be like, oh, I should have chosen Canon. Nikon. All right, next. This was the most, this was the most fun one to put up. Yes, MySpace. Long gone. All right, well, sort of. All right, next. Reebok. Is that it? Or this is the last one? No, it's not Japan. Gold Coast. Killed it, Gary. I mean, you work for them, so you'd hope so. This, this, ladies and gentlemen, is our logo. And there was a lot of money put into making that red dot. So anyway, here's the point. You look at an icon, <laughs> I know, we're not, we're not gonna dwell there. It's just for entertainment purposes only. Okay, you look at an icon and it, it draws you to something bigger. You know what the bigger thing is just by looking at this icon, this image, this logo. When we see that, we see what it represents. None of us went, that's just a picture with like colours. We all knew it represented something else. Jesus represents God. So when he wandered the streets of Jerusalem, people would look at Jesus and they would be drawn immediately to God. So when Jesus moves and the way Jesus says, his every movement is drawing people to worship God and think of God the Father rather than him. What's interesting too, if you go to Genesis 1, it says man was made in God's image. The word image is the word for icon. That's where we get the idea of logo. So every person was made to be an advertisement, a logo, an icon for God, that when people would look at us, they would see God, right? So, so we do an okay job at that sometimes. Jesus was the perfect representation of this. When you looked at Jesus, you saw God. And so in this case, he's wanting us to see him and to worship God the Father and to acknowledge what God has given to us and be thankful to God. And remember, all we need is God, right? Feast of Tabernacles, the Sukkot, the things that Sukkot was all about. 
So Jesus arrives at the at the um, at the at the feast of tabernacles. He arrives at Sukkot and he's hanging out and he's enjoying it. And then we're going to read what happens next. And I just want you to think of this question as I read the the, the next couple of verses. Knowing what you know about Sukkot that we've just talked about. Do the following behaviours that you'll now hear about constitute um, uh, behaviour that's acceptable in this festival, right? Just based on what you know, just listen to this and think, does this match up? Verse 11, the Jews were looking for him in the festival and they were saying, where is he? Because they wanted to kill him. And there was considerable complaining about him among the crowds. While some were saying he is a good man, others were saying, no, he is, a dece- he is deceiving the crowd. Does that sound like the vibe you'd expect to get at Sukkot? It's, it's just, it's completely anti it. It sits on the other side of it. God gives this, this festival to the Israelite people where they can forget about themselves and their own stuff and go, this is who we are in God. And this is who God is. It's where this party takes place. It's where God is a celebrated guest, where every thought should be about being renewed in God. And yet, the way these people choose to partake is to be concerned about everything except why they're there. It's kind of like coming to church and we're worshipping God and you're thinking, I don't know if I want to put my hands up because what are other people going to think of me? It's, It's... it's like sitting down during a prayer of thanksgiving and your mind dwelling on the fact that you've been wronged by someone and you want to get that right. It's like evaluating a sermon based on how entertaining it is rather than it leading you to Jesus. It's ridiculous, right? We'd never do it. I know we'd never do it. <laughs> but these Jews, they were rubbish at it and they certainly did it they were totally guilty their preoccupation with jesus was all about what suited or didn't suit them some wanted jesus to prove himself some wanted to kill him some discounted him as just a good man and others wanted to whinge about him and complain about him they entered into this feast of tabernacles they were actively behaving in the very opposite spirit that the sukkot the feast of Tab- the festival of tabernacles um kind of wakes up and, and churns up They completely missed what Jesus was leading them toward. And how easy is it for us to do the same? To completely miss what Jesus is leading us toward. You see, Jesus, when his time came, when he hung on the cross, he abolished the need for the temple, for the tabernacle and its sacrificial system. That wasn't needed anymore. He became the sacrifice for all. There was no need to get your sacrifice offered at the temple and be all sorted out and have your sin cleared away and be all good again. Now Jesus handles that transaction. He says, I will do that for you. The temple sacrifice used to take away your sin and now Jesus' sacrifice takes away your sin. So the transaction that used to happen in the temple now happens with Jesus, which means you don't need a temple or a tabernacle anymore because what the temple did for people on a short-term basis Jesus does for people on an eternal basis so the annual festival of tabernacles and all it represents becomes a reflection of the daily experience of being a Christian so what happened once a year for a week should be our daily experience every day because Jesus has become the temple. Jesus has become the tabernacle. We have access to Christ all the time. 
said differently, if Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, then Sukkot is yours every day. The festival tabernacles where people, where a person will be stirred with thankful hearts to God, where joy overflows, where our enemies can become our friends, where we can be free of stuff being more important than it is, where our identity can be renewed again. This is what we now find in Jesus, which is made possible by what he did on the cross. But it's not our constant experience, is it? Oh, I'd be great if it was, but it's not. It, it, I wish it was. I can think of a daily occurrence in my life that tears me out of Sukkot. It happens about 10 past seven every single night. You see, with the kids, we get to seven o'clock and we put them to bed and we survived another day. But at 10 past seven, Hamish goes, <laughs> thought you were out of it. And he chooses to expand bedtime, right? So I'm like, I love Jesus. I've been working hard all day and doing this stuff. I'm feeling really in support. And then this little voice says, Dad, can you give me another cuddle? Hamish, we've done like four, four episodes of cuddles tonight. Well, is it going to storm? No. No. Was that someone at the front door? Did you get a phone call? And each time it's, Dad, I've got a question. Are my water bottles full? Yeah, we just filled them up because I need to go to the toilet again. This will be the third time in 10 minutes, Hamish. And gradually, right, I'm wrenched out of Sukkot and I'm getting madder and madder. And, and after he tosses the doona off and asks to be put back on and he, he comes down and he says, oh, I need to tell you that Zari's not asleep. <laughs> Neither are you, except we don't care because she's in a room like pretending to be asleep. That's fine. Go pretend. Go pretend. And, and all this unfolds, and I'm gradually being just exercised from Sukkot, thinking there is, I'm finding it hard to feel joy and happiness and contentment and thankfulness to Jesus. You see, we're not always consumed by the joy that we wish. And sometimes things happen, it's so difficult to forgive our enemies. It's so hard we go, I just need this extra thing, when God says, I'm all you need. And it happens more than we'd like to admit that we find ourselves in the shoes of the brothers or the shoes of the Jewish people, consumed by our concerns and our agenda instead of trusting it all to God. But here's the radical thing. It's not Hamish's fault I'm removed from Sukkot. That's on me. We so easily like to blame others for taking away something they can't take away. He can't do anything to damage my relationship with God. I choose to give it up. I choose to forsake what I might choose to forsake. But that's, that's on me. And I think that's what Sukkot brings us around to realise it's owning what we sometimes give away and blame others for and owning that and saying, God, this is, I, I want to come back to you again and I'll find that everything is in you again and my security is in you again and renew that in me. You see, I need to remember when Hamish does this that he's a gift from God. Because he is. He's this beautiful gift from God. And I am so thankful for him. And when I, when I move to that point, when I have the, the wisdom or the wherewithal or the spirit reminds me and I go with it, I'm like, ah, oh, hang on. And it shifts my heart and it shifts the whole circumstance because that's what happened. That's what this spirit of Sukkot does. When we come to Jesus and we're in God's presence, we go, oh, hang on, I can see things the way God sees them. And it shifts the way our heart goes. So this passage that we've been walking through, it finishes 
with a really interesting line in response to that whinging and carrying on and the Jewish stuff that was going on. It says this in verse 13. Yet no one would speak openly about Jesus for fear of the Jews. When our focus is set on God and we discover our our joy and our meaning and our contentment in God, we find we have a testimony to offer. We have something to offer. We can't stay silent about it. But when we live in fear of what could be, which is what all those other ones were, we're just living in fear of, of how much wrong had been done them, of what lies, what lies ahead, of what we feel we're not up to, of the latest news that we've received that's just rattled us and shaken us, or what we think of ourselves or what we think of others. When we live in fear, our testimony is silenced. We don't need to worry about what our testimony is if we draw closer and closer to Jesus. So I want us to pray now, and we're just going to lead us into worship. And I want us to have a time of confession between ourselves and God. Confession is just is basically we we have the courage to be honest enough with God. And what I what I want you to to pray and to name before God is what have you been fearful of? Like the last week, the last day, the last hour. What is it that just doesn't sink with your spirit? That weighs heavy on you that keeps you up at night, that drives an anxiety that you wish just weren't there. What is that? Then maybe there's a bunch of things. But we're going to have a space where we're going to come and say, God, these are our fears because we're coming into your presence. Right? And that's going to lead us into a time of worship and we're expectant that the Spirit will bring a transformation. This will renew not only what has been, but will empower us for what is to come. Will draw us more to where God wants us to be. And so I'm going to lead us through a prayer time um, and then we're going to just move into a worship time. We're just going to sing for a little while some different songs and just invite you to, to let God meet you in this space, to let God minister to you, to let God rewire some stuff that maybe needs rewiring or take from you that which needs taking. So let's pray.